Hello, my name is Sergio Moreau. I am co-founder of Rebel Method, a community of founders creating a better world, and your host of the Blockchain Talks podcast, where we will be bringing you the latest from experts and innovators in the field that are talking about blockchain and blockchain applications. And this next episode is from the Blockchain Explorer event presented by MetaX, hosted at the Microsoft Conference Center in February 2018, talking about unlocking blockchain for digital advertising. And this next speaker, Mike Golden from Consensus, is talking about dramatically simplifying supply chains. Hi, everybody. Wow, thank you so much for coming. I've been so excited all day to get to talk to y'all. I've just been chomping at the bit to get to tell you um, what we're cooking up with the Ad Chain project. Um, so, uh, who here is somebody who buys ads? Who's on the demand side? Do we have any like people who buy ads in the room? Okay, we've got a few people. Okay, keep your hand up if you think you have ever bought fraudulent traffic, ever? Okay, yeah, cool, okay, thanks. Who's on the supply side? Raise your hand, do you sell ads? Okay, keep your hand up if you think you have ever sold uh, fraudulent traffic. All right, yeah, okay, that's cool, thanks. Are there any bots here? Okay. All right, cool. Okay, so uh, this is called going peer-to-peer dramatically simplifying programmatic supply chains. So uh, this is how, I'm gonna tell you how, how I think we can solve everything and live in a beautiful world. So um, as we all know, in web advertising, uh, billions of dollars are stolen every year, probably tens of billions, and perhaps a greater share of the overall ad spend than any of us are you know, readily willing to admit, because if advertisers knew what was really going on, they might not keep spending their money in this way, and then some of us might be without jobs. But increasingly, uh, advertisers do know what's going on, or at least they seem to be developing the same kind of like terrible feeling in the pits of their stomachs that I did uh, pretty early when I started working in this space, uh, which is that programmatic supply chains are completely untrustworthy, uh, that the scaling up of web advertising since its inception cannot be fully accounted for, and that the proportion of that scale deriving from non-human traffic might be terrifyingly substantial. So there's this thing going on uh, right now where advertisers are telling their suppliers to shape up uh, because they don't want their family-friendly brand content showing up uh, on offensive properties or next to offensive content. It's a big deal. They're going to pull the budget. They're really upset. Uh, but this sudden moral crisis spurred by the rise of uh, fake news, I think, is the kind of convenient malady which executives controlling advertising budgets can point to while standing on moral authority as to why they suddenly need to control their ad spend much more carefully. In reality, everyone has known for a long time that the web is a super gross and messed up place. But CMOs can use this moment as an excuse to rein in their ad spend dramatically without admitting that they've been throwing uh, billions of dollars into the void uh, buying impressions for non-humans for years. Suddenly, they're worried that their boss is going to find out so most people here, um, well, some, some people here are advertisers, but a lot of us here are, are downstreamers. Uh, downstream as in downstream from the money. Uh, so the way this works is the advertisers toss their dollars into the river. Uh, downstreamers fish out as many as they can while leaving just enough uh, for whoever is downstream of them that they can credibly claim, should an audit ever be conducted, uh, that they actually use the funds in service of sourcing impressions. 
And in exchange for letting some money float down the river uh, to the next party, that party passes back a little uh, unverified truth, you might say, about what they did with the money. And at the end of the river uh, are publishers. So the publisher's role is to return the ultimate proof that an impression was viewed by a real human, but nobody can really audit these attestations, and they're all we have to rely on. So uh, this isn't even really like telephone, where we start with the truth and then we lose it. Uh, often we're going to start with falsehood, and then it's like still telephone anyway, so uh, not, not a super good situation. So because advertising is a volume business for people who are downstream from the money, a lot of the supply chain is going to turn a blind eye to this. Uh, it's better to collect a 1% rent on a billion dollar spend than a million dollar spend, regardless of how inefficiently that spend is being allocated. So if you're an executive with an ad budget and you want more budget to increase the size of your corporate fiefdom, uh, you need to prove that the you know, million dollar budget that uh, you had last year was like super successful, that you met all the KPIs, and that there's like untapped mind share. You know, being left on the table because the spend isn't big enough. So in a way, even you as like a CMO, you know, you don't mind turning a blind eye to it either because it lets you provide inflated numbers to your CEO with some plausible deniability and like your corporate fiefdom gets bigger. But you're also nervous that the CEO might find out what's really going on and then you either have to admit that you knew you were throwing money into a pit all along or pretend that you're just incompetent. So publishers drive all this. Um, if you're a publisher and you can make a penny per thousand impressions and it only costs half a penny to buy a thousand impressions worth of traffic from a bot farm, and the odds of you getting caught are one in a billion billion, and the odds of facing any consequences if you are caught are minuscule because you're in a country that isn't going to be bothered to prosecute international cybercrime, when the victims are mostly from countries your government has poor relationships with anyway, and so to them it just looks like a nice cash transfer into their own economy, you're going to do that all day. So a criminal or uh, alternative entrepreneur, you might say, in these times, uh, can spin up some website that looks like a news website. They can even run a little uh, demon on their server that generates new content periodically throughout the day. And these bots are pretty good. They can generate like timely stories based on what's happening on Twitter, say. But you know everything they generate is just artificial regurgitation of whatever else is trending on Twitter, which means they artificially regurgitate a bunch of fake news. Different problem. The point is you can generate a website that looks real, but, it's, but which in reality has zero human readership. Uh, the website on the, on the right, uh, Liberty Writers, this is like a known fake news site where like the guys who run it are like, yeah, this is all fake, we're in it to make money. The site on the left is uh, Media Takeout, which is a site that I actually read. Um, but you know, like it's really hard to tell what's real and what's fake on the internet. So you have some fake website and you're going to join an ad network. Uh, this ad network might have like 5% real traffic. Uh, and this ad network is plugged into a few exchanges. This ad network is not going to audit you very carefully because they too are making money on volume. So if you're not egregious, you can play. And then if you as a buyer, even if you go through like a US-based exchange, they're completely unregulated and they're making their money on volume also. So they might do like a cursory audit of whatever ad networks want to join their supply pool. And if it looks real enough and will add volume, they're happy now advertisers are buying it. And if you don't like this version of the story, check out how easy it is to get a Google AdSense account. So this is all about incentives. It's about bad incentives. So just briefly, let's notice what incentives for users look like here. 
Uh, you're enjoying free content on the web, but these terrible advertisements are annoying you, they're slowing your computer down, they're chewing up your data, playing sounds, creeping you out by stalking you with reminders to buy whatever you left in your Amazon cart, mining cryptocurrency in your browser. Ads are basically malware, and so you block them. You still get the web for free, but now your privacy isn't being invaded, and your computer doesn't get hot when you go to Forbes.com. <laughs> Forbes has gotten a lot better recently. I actually I went to Forbes to like try to get a screenshot and found that my computer doesn't get as hot as it used to. So ad blocking is is kind of like an existential threat to web advertising. It happens on the client, so at best you're going to get endless cat and mouse if you want to devise a technical workaround. Uh, blockers, for the most part, are going to have the moral high ground because ads are so invasive. So real humans are going to be running ad blockers, and you are going to be left with bots. That's a nice market. You know, self-regulation has worked really well here. This whole industry uh, might be a house of cards. Um, it is potentially massively fraudulent. Uh, I'm just going to talk for a while. I don't have any slides, so I'm just going to have this nice cat living inside a gene there. So I think that, that regulation is a, is a kind of lazy answer. Um, in web advertising in particular, a lot of regulation would be hard to enforce since the web is like gigantic and international. Governments of the world aren't going to come together and unite to fight click fraud. But that's okay, uh, because actually technology exists now with which we can actually change the underlying incentive system of web advertising by reimagining how supply chains work. So just a quick recap, uh, what are the problems in supply chains today? One, opacity means that everyone can plausibly deny knowing that there was fraud in the supply they sold. Everyone has plausible deniability. Two, because there are so many black boxes between a buyer and a seller, advertisers can't effectively audit publishers because they simply don't know who they are a lot of the time. So the structure of programmatic ad commerce aligns incentives against social goods. It makes fraud not just easy, but rational. Like, you don't want to know how the sausage gets made in ad tech. Like, it's bad. Like, when I, when I first started working on this stuff, I was like amazed. Like, I thought I didn't understand how it worked, but then I realized that's just how it worked, and I was like, how can this be so messed up? But let's imagine a different world, just like a, a thought exercise. So let's imagine a world where, just hypothetically, advertisers always knew with perfect certainty exactly who they were buying ads from on a per-impression basis, just a fictional world. What if publishers could be held accountable to the quality and the veracity of the data that they provide? Fictional world. If advertisers know who they're buying from, they can price risk. This is something that their intermediaries should be doing for them right now, but because of the bad incentives we talked about earlier, they're not. If they were, DSPs would never be buying ad networks, and exchanges would never list ad networks. Because of the plausible deniability thing and the volume-centric profit motive, there's really only going to be a bare minimum of due diligence that happens in a supply chain. That chief marketing officer who wanted to increase their budget and was willing to turn a blind eye to fraud to do that, in this fantasy world, where advertisers know exactly who they're buying from, there would be no remove between the CMO and accountability for what is being purchased. Plausible deniability goes away. The CMO cannot say they were deceived in choosing exactly what impressions to buy. The CMO now has nobody to blame if the CEO finds out they've been buying bot traffic, so malfeasant or incompetent, which it would be. 
So in this fantasy world where we have both really good information and a really good incentive to use it, what happens? The incentives have changed here. Advertisers begin discriminating in what sites they'll buy impressions from. As a thought experiment, what's like a simple filter you might apply just as a first pass to start eliminating fraud in the supply you buy? Maybe, what's that? Yeah, geographic, sure. Maybe you're not going to serve ads to like Antarctica, maybe. Like, probably mostly fraud there. You might say you're only going to serve ads to like the Alexa top million sites. That, that would be like kind of the, probably good first pass. Uh, outside of the top million, it's going to be like mom and pops at best. It's not all fraudulent. There's going to be a lot of fraud in that category. It's a first pass. You can do as many passes of this as you want, trying to apply filters that will omit fraud while blacklisting as few high-quality sites as possible. If you want to be really good at this, you still use filters, but you might introduce exceptions to make sure that certain sites you know are high-quality that might otherwise get filtered out keep a spot on your list. Advertising will still be a volume game in this fantasy world, but the dominant incentive will be for advertisers to find volume rather than for suppliers to fake volume. Since when publishers know that their buyers know who they are, that one in a billion billion discovery chance becomes only as good as their scam artistry. The jurisdictional thing would still be a problem, but attribution would not. Weighing these factors would be part of the risk pricing that advertisers would now be empowered to do. So doing this filter research is work, and data about site credibility would undoubtedly be a hot commodity here. Uh, since advertisers, again, they do still want to broadcast their, their message as widely as possible. The best list, I think, uh, would be a white list of sites that report their impression data with the highest degree of accuracy, such that decisions about what categories of consumers to buy could be pushed out and made at the advertiser level. If you're just being honest with me, that's all I need. I'll make decisions about what to buy. Building these lists or acquiring them from service providers is the cost of doing business for advertisers, but they're still going to be saving a lot of money in this new world because there's far less fraud. So for publishers, the game now becomes to proactively endeavor to get listed in the most important whitelists, which would you know, perhaps be a small number of baseline, known, non-fraudulent lists produced by large firms as products or curated in an open source manner. So what would it take to get a listing as a publisher? The market would decide. Uh, if you're a firm producing one of these lists, that list's quality is your product. And you're going to do your best to balance rigor uh, with the drive for reach in curating your list. Advertisers will decide based on a firm's reputation what list they want to buy from, so these firms will always be in competition with one another uh, to produce the best lists. An open source list could exist, provided there were proper incentives for the curators to uh, curate it well. So as the free market competes itself into a frenzy to produce the best whitelist possible, new best practices will emerge in reporting standards. There will be a natural drive for publishers to satisfy those standards so they can get listed and charge a premium for their CPM so we get a market for honesty. This is all fantasy world. Um, could we do this? How could we get to a place where advertisers know exactly who they're buying ads from? How could we dramatically simplify programmatic supply chains? Well, what if we get rid of supply chains entirely and connect publishers to advertisers directly? That would let advertisers know exactly who they were buying ads from, and it would dramatically simplify programmatic supply chains. So how could we do that? Could we do that with lists? I think that we could. So imagine that you're a publisher. You subscribe to a, a list of high-quality advertisers who aren't going to serve inappropriate or invasive content to your users. What does this list actually contain? Say, so you trust the list at face value. You know, you, you bought it from some service provider. You trust the list is accurate. What needs to actually be on this list? 
we need our, our DNS name. So like, you know, NewYorkTimes.com is a DNS name. You would want a DNS name like advertisements.coca-cola.com where you could send RTB bid requests where Coca-Cola would be running some bidder. Uh, RTB, real-time bidding, just a format for serializing bid requests and web advertising. So you need this list of DNS names for trusted advertiser bidders uh, that are going to be listening for bids on some known port or route. So you've got the numbers for a bunch of advertisers, and you can call them up whenever you have an impression to sell them. Now if we stop here, we've just created a new direct route for botters to scam advertisers. Botters call up, they say, hey, this is the New York Times, I've got an impression to sell you, or I have a billion impressions to sell you, and the advertiser immediately has to hang up because that's probably not really the New York Times. Advertisers would never consent to being cold called in this way because 99% of those calls would be fraud. Simple domain spoofing. We need to give advertisers a way to authenticate that the inbound bid requests they receive are non-fraudulent. There'd be two steps for this. First, the advertisers themselves need a list of non-fraudulent publishers. To be specific, they need a list of DNS names for publisher ad servers. So Coke is running a bidder at ads.coca-cola.com, and the New York Times is running an ad server, which is the thing that makes bid requests, processes bid responses, at ads.nytimes.com. This way, when Coke's bidder gets a call from some random ad server, they can say, is this person in my contact list? If so, if they're listed, I'll pick up the phone. That's step one. Step two, we need to make sure the person calling is who they say they are. So we need some sort of mutual TLS scheme for this. Many ways we could do this. Someone was talking about ads.cert earlier. That would be a way to do this. You could put like a cert record in your you know, DNS listing. You could authenticate with a public key that way. Many ways you can do mutual TLS. So if we had this, we would have a system where advertisers get to talk directly to publishers and where both sides have strong cryptographic proofs of authenticity on all the messages that they exchanged. There's no more blind faith in opaque supply chains with track records of lying. We know exactly who we're dealing with and both parties have mutual records of exactly what the other said on a per-impression basis. So just to round this little story out, the, app, the publisher blasted out bid requests to all the advertisers on their list. Advertisers authenticated the publisher who sent the bid request, and some may have chosen to send bid responses. Others may have said, I, I trust you, you are who you say you are, I don't want to bid anyway, that's fine. The publisher selects the bid that they like best, serves the ad, and the tracking beacon fires. So a lot depends here in this fantasy world on the quality and the maintenance of these lists. It would be bad if a company providing a list was taking kickbacks to admit fraudulent sites. It would be bad if the company was not responsive in investigating allegations of misbehavior by entities that it was listing. It would be bad if the company went out of business and its customers were left with stale lists until they could sign a new contract and integrate with a new vendor. The system works if we have really high quality lists that are continuously curated and reliable. Earlier I was talking about firms competing to produce the best lists. The presence of competition itself should mitigate uh, some, of the bad, some of these bad behaviors or outcomes. If one list provider is putting out low quality product for any reason, these customers will go somewhere else. What would the peak predator of list making look like in such a market? Who could put anybody else out of business providing the ultimate white list? How do we build the best list possible that would work for web scale? Let's imagine a system and let's talk about building a list for publishers just to and root ourselves in something. So, as a list provider, you need to make money so that you can have employees continuously curate your list, vet new applicants, or maybe go out and hunt for candidates, depending on how you structure your business. And you probably need to bill either advertisers who are consuming the list or publishers who want to be on the list or both. I think the provider which wins the market here is the one which gives its way 
is the one which gives away its list for free to consumers, advertisers, and bills publishers to apply for consideration. Advertisers are the ones who pay, and if we can give them something for free, some of them might try it out, and that will entice publishers to, a try, to apply for consideration, because if they get listed long-term, they can make back their application fee and new revenue that they would have otherwise been locked out from. So the winner here, I think, is, is giving the list away for, for free. Totally open sourcing it and billing publishers to apply for listings because they have an incentive to be listed. Now, this business may have something of a problem. Uh, let's say it's super successful, actually, and all of the credible properties have been listed. After that initial glut, uh, if you're not billing advertisers, then your revenues are reduced to a trickle as new credible properties emerge slowly over time. You might start billing advertisers to access the list, or you might start billing publishers on a subscription basis to stay on the list, or if neither of those work, you might just choose to go out of business, which would suck for your customers because then the list goes stale. Listed entities can start defrauding people and there's nobody to investigate claims or coordinate a response, and it's every advertiser for themselves all over again. So ideally, we want a list that never goes stale and never becomes unavailable, and, and which also ideally should drive costs as close to zero as possible because that's how capitalism works and we might as well rush to the end game. So could we create an organization that can't go out of business? Could we create an organization that has no employees, no operating costs, and not even server costs to host the list? Uh, that sounds easy, right? How would that work? How could we do that? Okay, so. Let's imagine again, let's imagine that such a list exists. Let's start from a steady state and try to kind of like work backwards into how this thing might work. So this list exists, advertisers are using it to authenticate publishers and publishers who are listed are getting a premium for their CPMs relative to publishers whose impressions are only exposed through opaque supply chains. If such a list existed, it would be valuable to advertisers because it helps them source credible supply. Being listed on it would be valuable to publishers because they can charge premium for their CPMs. Publishers would be willing to pay to be considered for listing, but who's the curator if there's no company? So just for kicks, let's say that once upon a time, when the list first began, I was the curator. And what I did was I made this kind of monopoly money, which I would sell to anyone who wanted some. And the reason someone might want some is that it's the only payment I will accept to consider you for, for, to consider you for curation into this list. So at time zero, my fake money isn't worth very much because the system is experimental. Maybe I've convinced a few advertisers to try it out. Maybe I've fronted some of my monopoly money to a few publishers to convince them to try it out. But after a few months, it looks like this is kind of working. It's created a reliable revenue stream for listed publishers and advertisers are happy with the transparency of the supply chain. And so now interest is becoming more organic. It appears less risky, so there's demand for my monopoly money and I can charge more for it. The price to actually apply, I can adjust down. So if it cost 100 Monopoly money to apply when I first started doing this, and I was charging $1 per fake money, but now demand is such that I'm charging $2 per fake money, I can adjust the application cost down to 50 fake money. So cost stays the same, but I'm getting richer. The pile of Monopoly money I created is now valued at twice as much as it was originally. So I'm pretty happy. If I keep doing a good job by keeping fraudulent publishers off of my list, interest in my list is going to continue growing. Demand for my fake money will continue to grow and my net worth will increase, which makes me feel good. Now it's worth mentioning that publishers might not be the only entities interested in acquiring this fake money. This fake money is appreciating in value as I do a good job of curating the list. So somebody might look at this project and say, wow, this thing is gonna be huge and it hasn't even penetrated 1% of the market yet. I want some of this fake money today because it's going to be more valuable tomorrow. 
And I'd be happy to settle it. I don't care who wants the money. Fundamental demand just comes from publishers. As long as I keep advertisers happy by curating the list judiciously, judiciously, they'll keep buying. If other people want to buy also, that's fine. I just like making money. But then I get hit by a bus. But that's okay. Our list is going to be just fine. Because the speculators who bought my fake money have an incentive to see their fake money continuing to appreciate in value rather than go to zero, which it would if the list went stale because it stopped being useful for advertisers. And so publishers would stop purchasing monopoly money to be a part of it. There won't be any more fundamental demand if the quality of the list doesn't stay high. So these people who purchase my monopoly money, they have an incentive to step in and take up the mantle if they weren't participating already. This is why we have to use an application-specific monopoly money, because it decentralizes the incentive to maintain the system over a large number of people who, who can coordinate around a single idea, which is protecting and growing the value of their holdings. But I'm dead, so how do they come in and take over my system? How, how does that actually work like in a detailed way? Well, what I did was I architected my, my system in a certain way, you see. The monopoly money I've been using was all digital. What I did was I signed uh, one billion unique files with a private key. And my server will actually accept inputs from anybody who has valid Monopoly money. If you bought Monopoly money from me, I signed it to you, meaning you can now sign it to other people yourself, you can sign it to the server, and the server can sign it back to other people. Anybody holding the Monopoly money can follow this signature chain back to the original signer, me, to prove that they're not forgeries. So as far as my server is concerned, you're just fine. It never cared about me, it only cared about my money. So, quick recap of where we are so far in this little story. We have unforgeable digital monopoly money, which anybody can verify the provenance of without needing access to a central banking server of any sort. We have a server that anybody possessing this monopoly money can interact with, either as an applicant or as a curator. And we have this incentive scheme where people who have purchased the monopoly money want to use their curation rights to keep the list quality as high as possible, such that demand for their money stays high and its value appreciates, or at least doesn't decline in value. That's what we have so far. But again, I'm dead. This keeps causing problems for us, and so my, a my AWS bill stops getting paid, and eventually the server goes offline. Also, when I was alive, there would have been this problem where nothing would have stopped me from secretly creating more Monopoly money because I had the private key with which it was originally created and against which, and against which it is all authenticated. So people who would have been buying Monopoly from me, not Monopoly money from me as investments, thinking they were getting some defined slice of a finite pie, they would have been unhappy to discover that I had been secretly inflating the money supply behind their back. This is how the US dollar works. <laughs> so we don't want our server to go offline, and we don't want anybody to be able to create new money, not even me if I hadn't been hit by a bus. Now that second problem, we could encode as software rules. I could have had the server create the money and give it to me at time zero, and then not have included any logic for creating more and open source that software, but even if I did, you wouldn't have been able to actually prove what software was running on the server itself. So we need some kind of compute platform where our software will live forever, and where the software is totally transparent to anyone using it, meaning you can read the source code and verify that program is the one you're actually interacting with. For that, we can actually use something called a blockchain, and in particular a programmable blockchain, and in most particular a public programmable blockchain. So blockchains are computers which anybody in the world can compete to get to make an update to the computer's state. These are called miners, which you may have heard of. So blockchains have this very useful incentive game where every time a miner wins the game and gets to make an update to the computer, they also get to create a small amount of their own monopoly money, which all the miners share, which if you as a user want to update the computer, you have to include some of this monopoly money as a fee. 
And so miners have this nice incentive where they want their computer to behave reliably, such that people who such that people want to use it, and the value of their monopoly money goes up. Interestingly, the more miners are participating in this, the harder it is for any of for any of them to misbehave. So if we use a vibrant public blockchain that hosts a lot of applications, users of our application can be rather assured that it will always be available, even if I get hit by a bus. And I mentioned that anyone can be a miner, absolutely anybody, and that means anybody can look at the state of this computer and see exactly what any particular program looks like at the source code level. So let's put our list on that. Now we can prove things about the money supply, and if I get hit by a bus, there's no interruption of service. This is pretty good so far. I think we're like, I think we're winning at life. Uh, but we can do even a little bit better in creating this master list. So for good measure, as a final step, let's drive the costs down as close to zero as possible. No subscriptions, no rents, no recurring fees, just the bare minimum of money moving necessary to incentivize people to make this work. So what's up with these application fees I've been talking about? We have no employees, so who collects those fees? Truth is, there are, there are no fees. Um, I've just been saying fees that we could defer thinking about something else until this moment in the talk, so let's drop the whole idea of fees. There are no fees. Holders of the monopoly money are realizing upside by seeing demand for their money increase. They don't need arbitrary revenue. At the same time, however, we can't just let applications to this list be free, because then publishers could just spam us. Why wouldn't they? It's free. And that's going to give all the, uh, all the money owners trouble curating the list. Also, it would be nice, it'd be like a nice bonus, if we could provide some means for people with no capital to buy the monopoly money, some way to acquire it in exchange for doing useful work. That would be a nice feature as well. So what if instead of fees, applicants or publishers here made deposits? They make an application by putting down a deposit in monopoly money, and if they're credible and would make the list more valuable by being in it, they can just keep that deposit locked up in the software for the duration of the listing, and if they ever decide being listed isn't useful for them, they can exit the list. They can withdraw their deposit, sell it, and recoup some of their costs, or maybe even make money, depending on what happened to the market in that time. But to prevent spam, we do need to make it painful financially for people making ill-considered applications. So what happens when someone applies massivefraud.ru? So the way the application process actually works is that the publisher locks up some monopoly money, puts it at stake, and then people look at this applicant and they say, do I personally believe the list is more valuable with this applicant on it or off it? If I think the candidate would detract from the list's quality and I'm pretty confident that other people would agree with me, I'm going to challenge it by putting down a matching deposit using the same monopoly money. So now there's, now there's two equal pots of money at stake. Two pots of money at stake. So with the challenge initiated and two pots of money at stake, now people can vote. Now, we're not going to do one person, one vote. We're going to do one monopoly money, one vote. So that people with more exposure to the money's value have greater say in the curation process. People with the most to gain or lose by the list's curation quality have the most to say. What's powerful about this is that there's only loose coordination that's required since all of our financial incentives are aligned. Any actor can take rational actions based on how they imagine other actors will rationally respond. So the vote happens and the loser's deposit is going to be forfeited. This goes to the winner as a reward to compensate them for the capital they put at risk, and the voters have defended the quality of their list and thereby the value of the money they hold. Notice too that the capital risk in this process prevent, that prevents application spam also prevents challenge spam. Nice feature. I remember that a publisher who gets listed has their deposit locked up for as long as they are listed, which means we can challenge them even after they've gotten their listing if they start misbehaving. So if they go rogue and decide to abuse their listing for profit, we can challenge them out and confiscate their deposit.
In fact, advertisers who might believe they've been defrauded by a listed entity can do this themselves. And if they're justified, they can recover some of their loss totally in band to the program without ever having to get a lawyer involved. So this is how AdChain works. Everything I just described. Uh, this is the peak predator of list making in a peer-to-peer -peer ad economy. This is what peak performance looks like. You may not like it. It extracts no unnecessary rents. It requires no trust in anybody's honesty or goodness. It aligns financial incentives of participants towards curating the highest quality lists they can and making it available to anybody at no cost and operating on an immutable, incentivized ledger which will outlive any of its applications. Now notice, we're not putting any impressions in the blockchain. This is a low-throughput system that works well at blockchain speed. We're not requiring end users to use a special browser or have any idea that any of this is going on behind the scenes. We're not requiring the publishers or advertisers use cryptocurrencies to pay one another. They can keep using US dollars. Publishers just need a small amount of monopoly money for a one-time application process. And notice that we do all this at the lowest possible cost with zero overhead. If another list enters the scene, it could compete by coming in with a lower deposit requirement. And if that deposit requirement actually suffices to incentivize curation, token holders in the original registry can vote to lower their own deposit requirement to match it. So this simple thing, making lists in a transparent, trust-minimized way, opens the door to a peer-to-peer -peer ad economy without middlemen, without opaque supply chains, and without tens of billions of dollars in fraud. So we've talked a lot about publishers. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about advertisers, but um, we could curate a list, we will curate a list using that same transparent process. And that means that users can have a say in what kind of ads they're okay with seeing. If a user doesn't like Coca-Cola tra tracking them all over the internet, they can form a coalition and summon the funds to boot them off. They can run ad blockers that, only, that permit only ads from listed advertisers because those advertisers serve ads that support publishers but are small, respect privacy, and don't mind cryptocurrency in users' browsers. And if they violate that trust, users can remove them and receive a financial reward for doing so. So, a system like this could be the people's fist against surveillance capitalism. It could be a peer-to-peer -peer ad network owned by the internet. There could be an ad network that was accountable to its participants and which admitted no fraud. There could be a people's ad network, and that's how I would build it. Thanks. And that was dramatically simplifying programmatic supply chains at the Blockchain Explorer event presented by MetaX. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Talks podcast. My name is Sergio Marrero, your host and co-founder of Rebel Method. If you like the episode, please do comment and share. A special thank you to Newbie Music for the track. A link to the track is also in the podcast notes. Please join us next time to hear more from Blockchain Talks and hear the latest on blockchain innovation.